This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I absolutely do not want to be the the red-faced, angry dad in the Under Armour hat <laughs> with the Oakley shades and the, the crummy goatee <laughs> with his arms crossed in the dugout, you know, shouting. That's the kind of coach I don't want to be. Welcome to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. As a reporter, I've been in a lot of uncomfortable places. I've been in prisons, crack houses, hurricanes, but I never got as nervous as I did on the sidelines of a soccer field, coaching a bunch of 10-year-old boys. I mean, I've played soccer my whole life, and I was always solidly mediocre. But through a series of events, I ended up coaching my son's soccer team for about five years. And I mean, I, I hate to admit this, but I can still remember my stomach tensing up during those games, the feeling of absolute elation when my players scored and profound despair when they lost, all of which I hid from them, of course, most of the time. <laughs> anyway, it was just way harder than I expected, so I have a lot of sympathy for this week's listener. My name is Kelly. I'm 46, live in just outside of Seattle, Washington. Kelly is the father of two boys, aged 11 and 8. His younger son, Benjamin, is the athlete of the family. So got him into t-ball a couple years ago and saw a real lack of participation from the other parents. So I, I, I after a lot of consternation and hand-wringing, volunteered to be the head coach for his, his boys' farm ball team. Kelly didn't really play a lot of sports growing up, but he's still kind of a romantic when it comes to baseball. He even asked his team to call him Skipper. It kind of harkens back maybe to simpler times, but I, I, I don't know. It, being out on the field with your glove under the lights, it's just very magical to me, and I, I, yeah. I want to help my son and his teammates find that joy in sports. And I just, I didn't want to be the yelling dad, mm. you know, throwing a clipboard, or, <laughs> but I had a little mixed results with <laughs> how that turned out in, in real life. Just like me, Kelly discovered that coaching pushed him to his limits right away. I had no idea what I was doing as far as like um, running drills or, or teaching the game to these kids. And so I, you know, never, never, ever got angry at somebody for striking out or, or booting a ground ball. Like they're making an honest effort, right? And then there, and this is where I lost my cool a couple times. And I would, I'd, I'd blow my top. Well, I mean, not, I'm not cursing or anything, but I chose to just yell at the kid through the dugout and, and shame him in front of both teams and all the families. <laughs> Of the 6.5 million youth sport coaches in the United States, just one in 10 have received any relevant training. 
Most coaches are just parents who volunteered after no one else would step up. And if it's done poorly, it can have real lasting damage on kids. So in today's show, we're giving Kelly a crash course in coaching from The Coach's Coach. Doug Lamov's previous book, Teach Like a Champion, is a kind of Bible for school instructors all over the world. It's so good, in fact, that professional baseball coaches started showing up at his trainings. Soon he started working with U.S. soccer and eventually wrote a new book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. I don't think enough coaches start with the question of, like, why do I want to do this? And I think when that happens, you know, ambition and ego can easily step in. Doug has some fantastic advice for commanding attention and managing failure that we can all learn from on or off the field. So let's get warmed up and in the immortal words of Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights. Clear eyes, full hearts, get loose. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast, or find it wherever you listen. If you enjoy how-to, the best way to support this show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Your contribution helps us produce the unique stories that you hear in our feed every week. It's only $1 for your first month. And in addition to supporting our journalism, members never hear an ad on a Slate podcast and never hit a paywall on the Slate website. Slate Plus members are essential to keeping this show going, so I hope you'll join if you're able. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash howto plus. Again, that's slate.com slash howto plus. In our popular imagination, there are generally two types of coaches. One is the maniac coach that Kelly's trying not to be, like Will Ferrell in the comedy Kicking and Screaming. All right, let's break someone's clavicle on three. One, two, three, break someone's clavicle! Hit the field. Let's go. That's a trick, you know that? Move it, move it! Then there's everyone's new favorite coach, Ted Lasso. For me, success is not about the wins and losses. It's about helping these young fellas be the best versions of themselves on and off the field. Kelly is trying to be like Ted. 
Yeah, that was the first thing that popped into my mind. I, I'm certainly not like him in the in that way. I don't have a lot of uh, funny puns and whatnot. <laughs> that, that's that's who I'd want to be, right? Is, is that a, that ultimate encourager and someone who prizes fairness as much as winning. I created a, a dashboard in Excel <laughs> that I managed um, playing time at every single position by percentages of games played. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't favoring anybody, especially my own kid who loved to play pitcher. But when the final tournament of the season arrived, his competitive side started to show itself. Once the stakes got higher and it was win or go home, my coaches talked me into abandoning the whole everybody plays the same percentage. Out with the spreadsheet. Before we go any further, I wanted to ask our expert Doug Lamoff the million-dollar question. Should kids get equal playing time? There should be some minimum that everyone gets to play and some some equity yep. to it. But perfect equity is not fairness that, like, especially when some kids work really, really hard or do everything you ask them to do and are great teammates. Like, there, at some point, there should be reasonable rewards for extra effort. Mm -hmm. Okay, good to know. Now let's see how that worked out for Kelly's team in the do or die semifinal game. Uh, We were up for a good part of the game and we're feeling good and having fun and just, you know, all of a sudden the wheels just come off and and we lost. And after every game we'd go circle up real quick in the outfield and I would give out a game ball. The kids were in tears Mm -hmm. and we were the pirates and we all had like um, Pittsburgh pirate hats and and gear and the parents bought flags and you know we had eye patches for the last picture and stuff and um it was just really sad that it was over and and i i got choked up Hmm. i mean look everybody's season ends with a loss except one team one the fact that they're upset shows that it matters to them that they care about their performance and they care about the team so like that's a good thing part of it is just learning how to lose and how to deal with you know disappointment Ritual is both like useful for helping people feel belonging, but also is a really important tool for um, helping people process difficult things. So like being able to go out to the outfield and give your game balls again, uh, you know, return them to a sense of normalcy and focus them on the things that, that we said were valuable all season long. Here's our first pointer. Create rituals that build a sense of belonging and do them every time, win or lose, tears or no tears. We'll talk later about how to manage loss, but for now, figure out what's really important and back those values up with rituals. As Doug likes to say, you can get a lot wrong if you get the culture right. Worse than the the loss, like that was bad, it stings, but it was pretty quick. It was the, I had a couple kids, my son included, who had some just some bad slumps at the plate. Um, And there, one kid who probably has the sweetest swing on the whole team, really good athlete, great kid, and just all of a sudden, like a case of the yips, he could not hit the ball, not even foul it off, couldn't couldn't make contact. And that went on for four or five games. He had family out to watch him. His, you know, his grandparents mm-hmm. or whatever came out, and his kid's in tears after the game. Like, why is he, so why is, why is yeah. he crying? He's like, well, he's got his whole family here. Mm-hmm. My heart broke for that kid. Every swing was just like a knife mm-hmm. in my back. I was like, yeah. just please hit it, please hit it. <laughs> Yeah, there's like, there's there's value in failing and losing, and there's also like a, a tipping point, right, where it becomes like torture. Yeah. Doug, you know, it seemed like most of the feedback really has to happen in practice, right? Like at the game, 
there's just very little that you that's that helps. Is that right? I think that for the most part, that's true. There's very little you can teach during the game. What you can really do is remind players of things that you've taught them during practice. And, you know, the backstory on this is a working memory, which is the part of your brain that you think with consciously is really, really small. You can only keep sort of like one core idea in your head at a time. And so if someone's trying to play and you're trying to explain to them something new that you want them to do, one, they're not going to be able to do the new thing. And two, it's probably going to degrade their play. I'm not saying that's what's happening here, by the way. I'm just like sort of talking about the challenge of teaching during coaching. Yeah. And, and I know the other coaches and, and parents and even some of the players, like they mean well, but they're like, get your elbow up, put your elbow down, so yeah. you know, move your feet this way, move your feet that way. <laughs> when you start to struggle, everybody's got yeah. advice for yeah. you, right? Yeah. Like it's... That's our next pointer. Don't try to teach during games. It won't work. Teach at practice. Create catchphrases for each idea, shorthand cues you use over and over again to remind players later. But even in practice, resist the urge to say too much. One of the most useful phrases about coaching that I've ever heard is comes from a rugby coach in New Zealand who says, if you chase five rabbits, you catch none. And the idea is that like, want to, you know, I'm just imagining this, this kid at bat lift your elbow, step into it, you know, like watch, watch the ball, relax, you know, watch your, you know, play attention to your back foot, r rotate your hips, right? Even if those were good pieces of advice, you know, lots of times we try and make athletes better by trying to tell them lots of things to do at once. And the result is that you can't really concentrate on or follow through on any of them. And it just results in, in confusion and working memory. And so, Interestingly, a couple weeks ago, I was working with a coach who's, he's an assistant coach of an NBA team. One of the interesting things about watching the practice session is there are all these assistant coaches around. And so pretty much everything that a player does during this practice session, someone is commenting mm -hmm. on it to the player. And so what we talked about was one, like having coaches just have a, a clipboard and a place to write things down, right? So like we can actually make a strategic decision about the one thing to tell him to focus on as opposed to like him just being harangued by this sea of, of feedback. Here's another tip. Chase one rabbit at a time. Don't overwhelm players with feedback, even in practice. Keep all those other teachable moments on a clipboard for later use. Yeah, this is our really good advice, actually, because there's so much going on during the game and the pressure is so high and it's just a, 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 a quick snapshot, whereas this should be done in practice. We are kind of fortunate uh, if there ever is a silver lining with COVID that the parents had to be out in the outfield beyond the fence, that there was no sitting in the bleachers, you know, right, right by the batter's box. We didn't have a lot of um, parents chirping. And that's going to uh, change, right? I assume. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Doug, do you have any thoughts about how can a coach manage backseat coaching from parents? That's so challenging. Because uh, of course, often parents mean well by it, but they, you know, it can be very counterproductive, both to players' growth and to the culture that's uh, that's happening on the field. And it's, you know, the better you get and the farther you go, the more challenging it's it's mm, going to be. Yeah, bet. So I think like having a preliminary conversation with parents at the beginning of the season, which is like, here's like, we need to be disciplined about not talking about umpires and referees, either during the game or even like, I can't control this. But like, if you get in the car and the first thing you say to your son is, wow, the umps really cost us the game there you're preventing them from thinking about, you know, what's useful for them, which is how did you play and what can you improve on? And, or did you have a great time, et cetera? And so if I can communicate that to 
parents in advance. Like we're trying to really work on on our coverage and making sure that like we're always covering the right base and we're always throwing to the right base. And so if parents know what you're trying to accomplish, it's easier for them to be aligned in the things that they Hmm. shout for from the sidelines. That's a great idea to give them something they should do rather than what they shouldn't do. I don't know. Did you have this, Kelly? I don't know if they do this in baseball, but with our soccer league, they had silent Saturdays once a season where (laughs) nobody was supposed to yell anything during the games. And it was like the parents hated it. It was so painful. (laughs) <laughs> I, I know a coach who um who had he had a manager and is a parent on the team and this is just a parent who's good at this and he gave a parent a bunch of lollipops and, the parent, <laughs> and if there was a, a if there's another parent who was like not quite on the right side of productive and positive in the way in the things that he or she was shouting during the game the parent would just hand them a lollipop and the message was that's what your mouth is for. Oh, that's <laughs> Here's our next pointer. As the coach, it's your job to manage the parents, set expectations at the beginning of the season, and tell parents what they can do, not just what they can't. All of which gets a lot more complicated when the championship rolls around, of course. All right, halftime team. When we come back, we'll tackle what to do when people stop being polite and start talking trash. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions, built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. All right, listen up, team. In the first half, we talked about how to be a good coach and manage the parents. But now it's crunch time and the game is on the line. What do you do if you're a good parent stuck with a bad coach? 
Doug found himself in that situation a few years ago with his daughter's elite soccer team. The worst coach that my daughter ever had, she was the coach of the A team and my daughter was on the B team and she came to like coach the B team because their, their coach was out that day and they like, they weren't playing well. And at halftime she was like, this is why you're the B team and not the A team because you guys don't want it hard enough. And like, uh, there was just a lot of like telling 14 year old girls that their struggle is like a personality flaw on their part. Uh, and I, I moved my, I moved my daughter to a different club after that. Well, it's a lot like when your kid gets a teacher who is, you yeah. know, undertrained and doing counterproductive things. Then you probably have to think about stepping in as a parent, but I hesitate to say that out loud to parents because so many parents, you know, use that mm-hmm. tool in a counterproductive way, confronting the coach about like, my kid didn't start. Yeah, right. Learning to deal with unpleasant people or situations is a life lesson, one that people come to sports for. But it's not an excuse for coaches to degrade or demean their players. There has to be a better way to motivate kids to try harder, right? One of the things that interrupts the feeling of pleasure that players have is um, when there isn't a culture of error. Hmm. which is when it's not safe to fail and when it's not safe to make mistakes. And so like a phrase that I was going to suggest to you, um, Kelly, you described briefly, like shouting at the kid to cover second base, you know, like I think a really good phrase for using in practice is, I'm so glad I saw that mistake. Then we're going to study the mistake and it's actually going to be really interesting and I'm going to learn from it. And then I'm going to be happy because I understand the game better. I always think it's great to think about giving feedback to players in a way that expresses your belief and faith in them and also teaches them how to be better because that's what they want. Here's our next few tips from the playbook. Capitalize on mistakes and turn them into learning opportunities. Don't be afraid to tell a kid they're wrong, but do it right. Doug says there's a few ways to do this. First, talk aspirations. When you get to the next level, you're going to need that, you know, that ball's going to have to come out of your glove a little bit faster. So let's practice that now. Second, set a challenge. That was pretty good, but I want, I want you to see if you can get the ball out of your glove even faster. So here's how I want you to feel the ball and you see if you can do it, you know, big league quality. Third, assume the best when a player makes a poor decision. I can see why you wanted to go to third there, right? You wanted to get the lead runner, but there's a force at second. And so in this case, I love that you I love that you're thinking about that. But in this case, the right decision is to throw to second. Fourth, a lot of teachers and coaches use the praise sandwich. A compliment, then the criticism, then another compliment. But kids see right through that. One time actually when I was a teacher, a student said this to me. She said, Mr. Lamov, when I want to know what you really thought of my paper, I skip down over all the nice things you say until you get to the word but, and then you tell me the truth. <laughs> and, what, and what that tells me is that like she had learned to basically hmm. discount the positive because she knew it was always sort of obligatory. So when I use praise, I, I really want it to, to pop for players. And so I want to preserve it and not overuse it. That sounds like a lot like parenting too, right? Not to overpraise. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Kelly, does this resonate with you? It does. And this is really awesome insight. I'm curious though, Doug, what you'd think uh, about we have the batting order, we shout it out, it's right there in the dugout, we always keep the same order. 
and kids just sitting there on the bench, jabbing away with his buddies, doesn't have his gloves on, doesn't have his helmet, doesn't have his bat, and I will lose my cool, man. It's stuff like that mm-hmm. that just felt very disrespectful to me and the team, and I, I lost it, and I told him, nope, you don't get the bat. We're skipping over you. Mm-hmm. You're going to lose your turn. And I'm shouting. Too. I am. I am yelling, not not abusively, but I'm. Right. My voice is. You're high. frustrated. I'm frustrated, and I'll feel bad about chewing that kid out, sure. probably <laughs> for for a while. But I'm wondering what if you have any take on that. Like, yeah, it's such a great, it's such a great question, a hard question. I think you've hit the nail on the head, which is like that is just one of the biggest challenges of coaching young athletes, in particular, is the attention gaps. Mm-hmm. And one thing is, I think that when there are moments when I have to like correct a player in a more decisive way whenever possible i want to do it privately and maybe i want to like i have this phrase it comes from a classroom it, it comes from watching a video of a teacher where like one kid in the class laughs at another kid when she's trying to read something and like this is just like a big culture foul to her right like you don't get laughed at for trying to struggle in the classroom but she instead of walking directly over to him uh, she walks a little bit of a loop, like around the back of the classroom, just to give herself like, you know, a second or two to compose herself. You know, and the research on this is like, if you can slow down your decision making, even by a second, you know, you let your mm-hmm. rational brain catch up. And so I might be like, Kevin, come on, Kevin, come on over here for a second. Okay, you missed your spot in the batting order. And that's a big deal, right? Because it's part of our obligation to the team is to make sure we know what our job is, and we're prepared, and we're ready. You should be getting yourself mentally ready to hit. And so and then Every inning when you come back, I want you to go right to the batting order and check every time. And I want you to come tell me where you are in the order in that inning. And we're going to do that for the next three or four innings because I want you to build the habit of being alert and being attentive. And this is like such a challenge with recreational sports, right? Is that some kids are really serious, deadly serious about it. And they really want to win. They really want to get better. and, And other kids really could not care less. They just want to goof around. They want to chase yeah. the butterflies, like you said. But I think that kids like that are often more responsive to peer-to-peer accountability than they are to adult accountability. Yeah, that's you've, yeah. you've given us three tactical ideas for managing behavior. One is make it private. Don't do it in public, like pull a kid aside. Mm-hmm. And the next is um, suggest a replacement behavior. So again, something you can do rather than what you shouldn't do. And then the third is like create systems, ideally peer-to-peer systems, right? So that it's automatic. Kelly, what do you think about all this? Could you imagine creating a system that you could uh, for figuring out who's next at bat? Yeah, I can. I mean, part of it too is like I'm feeling embarrassed, right? By the families who are watching now like, oh, Skip's not organized here. Yeah, he doesn't have. You know, he's not in charge. Um, these kids are are all over the place, and you know, I, and my cheeks get all red, and I get you know, mm-hmm. and then just the the needle starts to move, and uh, and I lost my cool, and I I wish I had had been armed with information like that, you know. And this is this is also like parenting, right? Like the moments I regret most, and maybe this is just me, but the moments I most regret from parenting are when I was embarrassed, you know. So yeah. then it's like a trigger something where I'm like, you know, I get too involved. Again, it comes back to like the ego, right? Like it's somehow a reflection of me as a parent that this kid is having a tantrum yeah. in public. And when I started coaching soccer, you know, they make you take the little further rec level license, like the little uh, online training. And literally everything my coaches did when I was a kid in the 80s, they said not to do. 
you know, especially, you know, wait in line for drills. No, no, no. Uh, run laps as a punishment. No, no, no. Um, and so, but I admit there was a dark moment where, where we had some kids run laps because we just didn't know what else to do. Like, yeah, I would have kids do push-ups sometimes. Then his efforts, like, what am I doing? These kids don't even know how to do push-ups. I know, push-ups. their push-ups are so bad. It's just <laughs> They're bad. They're so terrible. Bad. And then they kind of want to do them and show off anyway. <laughs> right now you've like rewarded not even them. Really, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, in some ways, but also, like, sometimes a kid wants to do push-ups because they, they want to pay you back, right? They want, they want to set the account. Oh, okay. Yeah. Straight, which is, I just think it's interesting. Like, I'm not totally sure that it's always wrong to teach kids to pay attention one good thing about doing the push-ups is it, it prevents you from from giving a lecture, right? Like this yes. is something that <laughs> comes up a lot in the book and in Teach Like a Champion and I mean all your work, right? And it haunts me to this day because it's like, say less, do more. One benefit of it is it's right away. And there's a lot of social science research that says a much smaller consequence immediate to the behavior that you're trying to change is much more effective than even a much larger consequence that comes later. Okay, so everybody loses it once in a while. Do you recommend apologizing if you do lose it? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I think if we want students to be comfortable making mistakes, we have to be comfortable making mistakes. Yeah. And I just think like, you know, accountability is an, accountability is a lot of what what a lot of sports are about, what life is about. Yeah, I think it's important to be able to be accountable. That's encouraging. Kelly, I wonder if, has this been helpful? What's, what's kind of sticking with you? Very much so. And what's stuck with me the most here that I'm going to take away from this are like, it's okay to forgive yourself for one. Yeah. <laughs> I beat myself yeah. up a lot. Like I'm not ruining their, their lives. Uh, you know, my ego was all wrapped up in eight-year-old's um, throwing and catching on the field where it's like, you know, what are, what are we trying to do here? And like keeping that perspective is going to be very, very helpful for me in the future. So I, I thank you very much for that. Can I just say like, I, you bring so much self-awareness and self-reflection to your, uh, to your coaching that I just, I'd be great if everyone's uh, kid got to play for a coach who approached it that way and was, uh, mm-hmm. was as humble and self-reflective. So, uh, you know, don't I would say doubly don't kick yourself around because I just think you, you you bring a lot of that and that's uh, kids deserve that. We gotta have the memory of a goldfish, right? As Ted Lasso would say. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I always tell the kids that too, right? You gotta you, you gotta forget about your last at bat. Coach, I'm I'm sorry. You know what the happiest animal on earth is? It's a goldfish. You know why? No. It's got a ten second memory. Be a goldfish, Sam. Yeah. Today's game ball goes to Kelly for sharing his story with us and for his willingness to learn. A big thank you to our skipper for this episode, Doug Lamov. Make sure to look for his book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. And by the way, we did get an email from Kelly. He wasn't sure he was going to coach again next spring, but after our conversation, he's decided to give it another go. Go Pirates! Is your team in a slump? Are you stuck in a losing streak? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a message at 646-495-4001. And who knows, we might have you on the show. And if you like what you heard today, please give us a rating and a review and tell a friend. That helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson produces the show. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. 
I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening.